0: Hey everybody it's Britt, lead pastor at sunridge welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast you know we are on a mission here at sunridge to help people find and follow jesus we believe in the good news that jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from god that means we're a great starting point to explore christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted jesus followers If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. I hope that you're doing well. You might be a guest with us. Sunners might be your established home church. As we said earlier in the service, we are so, so glad that you would join us On this Sunday morning, thank you, Worship and Tech team, for kicking things off for us. My name is Jed, and it's an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we are going to be continuing through our teaching series in the Gospel of Luke. And we launched that this past December and synchronized it with the Christmas season, the birth narratives there. And we are working Toward April and Easter this past Wednesday. Perhaps some of you know that traditionally the season of Lent has begun. And so as we prepare our hearts and our minds as a church family to celebrate Christ's sacrifice and then his resurrection from the dead, we are going to place ourselves here in Luke's gospel as Jesus is making his way closer to that destiny. Now, Before we get too far along, I'd like to pose a simple question for us. And the question is, did Jesus come to bring peace? Again, the question is, did Jesus come to bring peace? Now, it's not a trick question. I'm not trying to fool you. I would hope That all of us, or most of us, would be able to say yes wholeheartedly. Jesus did come to bring peace. He embodies peace. He himself is our peace. And perhaps as you think about that question, you might be remembering passages like the prophet Isaiah who spoke prophetically about Jesus. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he's named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, words that we would see toward Jesus. Or maybe you're remembering Jesus on the night of his betrayal with his disciples as there's angst in that room and in this long discourse what we have captured in John chapter 14, Jesus saying, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. So again, if I were to ask you this question, does Jesus come to bring peace, what should the answer be? Oh, come on. (laughs) Yes, wholeheartedly, he does. And yet, we know that there's so much more for us to consider than just a hearty yes to that question. And so the passage Of scripture that Megzi read for you comes from a long teaching and reading section. You'll see it up on the screens, Luke 12, verses 22, all the way through chapter 13, verse 9. And throughout this series, to keep us calendared, we've given ourselves long sections of reading and teaching, right? There's no way that any of us from this stage could go and teach every single verse from the text. We're asking that you read along with us and then we will select from those places to draw out part of the narrative and god's intent throughout and preserving it through the writer luke and so today when Megzi came up and she read chapter 13 verses 1 through 9 that was the concluding section of this long teaching and reading juncture that i have been tasked to present and in that section I don't know if you remembered, but there is this scene where Jesus is being approached by people and questioned about what would have been front page news, hot off the press. And the first is a tragedy where Galileans wrongfully have been killed in some way. And it says their blood has been mixed by Pilate with their sacrifices. And it's a troubling scene. But Jesus' response to the people who have questioned it is this. If you think that those Galileans, those people who suffered, suffered because they were more sinful, then you're wrong. And then Jesus brings up a tragedy not too far away, an architectural disarray moment where a a structure falls and people are killed in that place. And again, Jesus says to them, if you think that the people who perished there died because they were more sinful and you're wrong. And he was essentially being consistent with stuff that he had shared prior to and would continue to share that rubs against how we want to see the world because we want fairness. We want things to be equitable. If we believe that we're putting in hard work, well, we want to be rewarded for that. We cling to truths like you will reap what you sow, but there's so much more than just this give and get. And so when Jesus is in this section, he's essentially giving us nuance to what you and I would experience as unfairness. And so he follows up with a parable about a fig tree, and we've heard other parables about fig trees, but this one is a little bit unique because the owner of this fig tree, this tree that has had three years to produce fruit, comes and says, where are my figs? Where are my figs? And the gardener says, they're not there. And so we would think it's the gardener's fault, or is it the tree's fault? Whose fault is it? It's a captivating story because the gardener, who we can interpret as Jesus himself, tells the owner, hey, let me work on this a little bit longer. Let me dig a hole around it. Let me fertilize it more and come back in a year. And check on it and if it still doesn't have fruit then you cut it down yourself you see how in these two instances we have these circumstances one a current event and another a story where jesus is putting the test this idea of what peace and wholeness looks like so that's how that section concludes but this morning i'm going to have us start right in the middle of this long teaching section And it's in Luke chapter 12, and in verse 49, we have these words of Jesus, and he says this, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, Five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Does it sound like the worst drama TV show ever? That's what Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring. That's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? How many of you, when you think about that question, did Jesus come to bring peace? Were you just ready to respond with this passage of scripture? Probably not. I don't imagine you were. You see, on one hand, we can be uncomfortable with this sentiment that Jesus would have words this strongly. But then on the other hand, some of us might hear this and get really pumped up. Now, I know that we've got some middle school students in here and some high school students in here, and I'm thinking about two instances in my life where I saw school fights. Do any of you remember those? See, whether or not you're in middle school or high school now, I can remember being these two distinct settings. One was in the schoolyard and one was by the basketball courts, and suddenly there was just these flurries, right? And the next thing you know, my peers were screaming, fight, 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 fight. Any of you there? Yeah, do you know what that's like? Britt's like, I was the one in the middle. (laughs) See, what's funny is we might look at those circumstances and get really drawn in and captivated by that type of aggression and even that violence. But if you think, parents, that I'm telling your middle school and high school students to chant when people are fighting, that's not what I'm saying. And students, you do not hear that here. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the opposite. What I'm saying is that it's really easy at times for pastors to take sections of Scripture like this and actually insert what we would call eisegete, bring to the text stuff that isn't there. And we might want to insert our testosterone here. We might want to bring our cockiness or our bravado and say, See, there's the Jesus. There's the man. There he is. Even though he tends to not sound this way. We want to take this and. Show it to the world. Here is the man. Here is Jesus. Being like we want him to be. But this morning, I'd like to make a claim. That isn't my claim. It's Jesus' claim. And provide evidence to show us. And here's your first fill in the blank. That Jesus will divide us. It's your first fill in the blank. Jesus will divide us. Now, I'm typically accustomed to having these passages of scriptures and showing you literary and historical context and staying there before we cross the cultural bridge and talk about ways in which we can be impacted by the truth that's here as lifelong disciples and followers of Jesus. But here's the reality about this section that we're in. Quite frankly, Jesus' first century hears. And then the people who would read Luke's gospel after he wrote it, and then the folks throughout the centuries, all would look at this section of scripture or hear Jesus' word at that point in time. And the response is very, very similar to the one that you and I would have today. It would provoke a what in the world is going on. And so instead of spending all this time basically telling you that that's what they're doing, what in the world is going on, We're going to move a little bit faster, a back and forth to how this can impact us here today. Are you guys okay with that? All right. So here's your next fill in the blank to support Jesus's claim that he will divide us. Jesus will divide us because he is a choice. Write that down. He is a choice. Now. There's a little blank section in between all of these points. And I'd just like you to write down a little question there. And, all right, make sure you put the three N's in there to emphasize your curiosity. (laughs) Because, yeah, Jesus is a choice. And you're looking at me going, okay, we know that, right? You might think he's a choice between heaven and heaven. Or hell, you might think that he is a choice based off of obedience or disobedience. You might think that Jesus is a choice based off of your affiliation with him or not. But when I'm saying that Jesus is a choice and he will divide us because of that, I'm talking particularly about how he, as a person, no matter what, for as long as you've known him, or don't know him, he is going to continue to bring the vision to you and me. Why? Because the longer I spend time with Jesus, the more I go, what in the world are you talking about? And that should be our response, quite frankly. Our response should be surprise and shock at the things that Jesus says and the way that he goes about and lives those things. He is shocking. He is choice and he will continue to do that to us he will blow up the things that we believe so so strongly in a few chapters back we see this section in chapter 11 where jesus is beginning to blow up some things that they thought to be true and in verse 14 it says this now he was casting out a demon that was mute when the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and a house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out the demons by Beelzebub. And later on he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So what's happening in this scene? How is Jesus being an explosive choice in and of himself? The very fact that these people are questioning how he can cast out demons is showing how explosive he is. Because quite frankly, even though there were exorcisms at the time, it was pretty hard to cast out demons. People might pretend that they could do those things, but it's not like people were walking around saying, here, let me cast out that demon and cast out that demon until Jesus appears on the scene. And so those around think, well, he must be in cahoots with the person who's setting up the demon, right? It must be a magic trick of sorts. And so the religious begin to say to Jesus, the only reason you can do that is because you are a part Of that group. And Jesus is saying. That's blasphemous. In fact. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I know that's like. People have taught on that for so long. But contextually. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Is attributing the things to Jesus. Evil. That he is trying to purge out. And so it wrecks things theologically. Because it pushes against the notion. That God would be setting up a system. So that he could show people how great he is. Do you see what I'm saying there? It's really troubling to grapple with the fact that Jesus is saying, trust me, that's not how it works. God isn't giving this person a demon so that he can take it out. And neither am I working with Satan so that I can prove to you that I can do it. It's neither of those things. Jesus is explosive. He's a choice. And then later on, I'm going to put up some passages that Danny talked through last week. If you didn't get a chance Go back and listen to it. It was an incredible message. And Jesus, while he's speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in and took his place to the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Right? I'm not going to go through all that. Danny taught that last week. And then later on, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And then following that, when he went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile toward him and cross examine him about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Again, go back and listen to that message. But what I'm saying and what Jesus is doing is if you pay attention to him and if you watch him, he is constantly going to be saying and doing things that make you question the stuff that you've held tightly too. And that's really tough. So here's the second fill in the blank. Jesus will divide us because life is hard enough. And that's why it's really tough. You know, this this morning before I got on stage, I got some time and I was chatting with Julie Cherry over here. And Jules was telling me about Uh, her classroom and what that's been like and just the kids going back and forth. And she was asking about my boys and how difficult that's been. And at the end of it, we are talking about how it's so, so easy to get caught up in how busy we are and how stressed out we are. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what it's like whenever someone asks you how you're doing? What do you want to say? Come on, say it. Fine. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's, I should have known. Fine. But if you were to put some more words to fine, how would you describe the state of your life? So I'm stressed. I'm so busy. I mean, I'm sinking underneath it. I'm pulling my hair out. I found myself years ago realizing that when people asked how I was doing, that's, that's essentially how I wanted to respond. I wanted to tell them how busy I was. I want to tell them how hard it was. And it's not that you're not busy and I'm not busy. And it's not that it's not hard. But Jesus will divide us because life itself is hard enough. And we want to emphasize the difficulty. We do. Because it makes for good news. And quite frankly, your life is hard. And there are incredibly difficult things happening in our world that we have more exposure to than we ever had before. And it's not that these things weren't happening before. So when the pastor tells you that there will be wars and rumors of wars, and that's what Jesus said, and so now it's happening, and we better be ready. Jesus was saying that over 2,000 years ago. He's been asking us and telling us to be ready. It's not about not being ready. It's about recognizing that it's going to continue to be filled with those things. And he will divide us if we get our sights on those things and the difficulty of all those things and forget why he actually came. Your question that you can fill in at that point, is this supposed to make me feel better? (laughs) I don't know. Don't leave it up to me. Look at what Jesus said to the disciples earlier before this division piece after a section that's really familiar to you that do not worry. But listen, in verse 32, he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, when everyone's trying to get us all worked up and freaked out about the state of the world, now it's going faster and faster and faster and worse and worse. I'm pretty sure Jesus is still trying to get this to us do not be afraid little flock for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom you see that's not as exciting because a lot of us want to hear about how russia is in ezekiel chapter 38 thank you Britt. it's not there we can talk about that more later oh i don't mean to upset you but it's just not i'm sorry Let's keep moving here. Jesus will divide us because it wasn't his mission to be the founder of Christianity. Okay, before you throw tomatoes at me, write down, uh, what did you say? (laughs) Write that down. It's getting real quiet in here. This might be the last message I ever teach. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. Jesus didn't come to make Christians. And we've talked about that before. But when we're teaching on a section where Jesus says he came to bring division, it's probably important to recognize the next this day in life, we probably don't want to address the things that are divisive for us as Christians because life is already hard enough. You see that point beforehand? It's hard enough. It's hard enough to deal with the things that are happening in school or your work or with your significant other, your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse, your aging parents or your little kids or wanting to date or the midterms that you have coming up, or those business quotas that you need to hit, whatever it is, life is hard enough, right? It's difficult to go to the doctor, and to your counselor, and to your workplace, and to meet with your coach, and to go back to your home, or to find a home. Life is hard enough. And because it's hard enough, and generally when we think about our relationship with God, we want God to take care of the things that are hard for us, the stuff that we worry about. The last thing that you and I want to do is disrupt this thing called Christianity or our faith because this is consuming enough of my time. And I don't need Jesus to come and have me consider new ways to think about what all of this is, which ironically affect all of this over here. But I don't want that to happen because that is difficult. And so instead, what has happened throughout the centuries is in Christendom, in Christianity, we have safeguarded the things that we think are going to be divisive. And we spend a lot of time arguing about those things. Then we come up with these ways to cover that so that people essentially stop asking hard questions. And there's goodness to this statement, so don't, don't, don't hear me that I'm blasting it all up, but you've heard in essentials, what? Unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. And I'll tell you, I, I believe, essentially, and you'll see it come out later on, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, crucified on the cross for the forgiveness of sins buried and raised to new life an invitation to us and i could preach that over and over and over but the way that in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity has been used throughout the centuries is to make it so that some of us who sound smarter can come up with arguments that the rest of us can't keep up with you see jesus didn't go around During his ministry, when he is proclaiming the kingdom and his message of salvation. And salvation literally means deliverance or freedom. And so when people look back at Jesus and say, how did they not know that he was trying to not set up a geopolitical kingdom? How did they not realize that he wasn't trying to install himself as a physical king? Well, it would have been really hard to see because you and I deeply care about the state of our world. And the state of our world is deeply affected by politics and what's happening around us and oppression and how our personal lives are impacted by things that are happening all over the world. If you don't think that you and I are concerned about that, then what in the world has been happening in the last several weeks, right? And so when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom, of course people thought he was there to deliver them into a physical kingdom. Of course. And yet, when we think about Christianity and what has come from that, it's too easy for us to start arguing about the things that were established after Christ. Not that those things aren't in nature beginning to burst forward. But Jesus, I'm telling you, did not walk around. And he wasn't asking people to recite different creeds to see if they were in line with him. He wasn't putting to test whether or not someone could explain well the triune nature of God. He wasn't putting forward questions that would determine whether or not someone was a dispensationalist or a secessionalist. He wasn't asking people to give them their views on whether they were pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. Or if you prefer pre-millennial or all-millennial or post-millennial or he, he wasn't questioning people about whether or not they could describe how the Immaculate Conception came to be. Jesus wasn't going around asking people to defend what we would term the orthodox or historic tenets of the faith. And I know this might sound so scary to us. But I don't think it has to when we think about what Christianity, Christianity, to mean in the state of being like Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, is supposed to be. So here is a passage of scripture that you can read later. It's, it's in your note sheet. Maybe you can circle around. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. And I'm really excited because in a few months, we're going to be teaching through the gospel, or excuse me, the, the book of Acts and chronicling the emergence of the followers of Jesus that would eventually need to be called something because of how outrageous it was. You see, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we have the first time the word Christians is used in your Bibles. It says, the disciples, the lifelong learners to Jesus, were first called Christians at Antioch. This wasn't... Like, uh, yes, you're Christians. We know that Jesus Christ, when we say Jesus Christ, we know that Christ isn't his last name. We've we've talked about that, right? We know that Christ, we can can configure and understand as Messiah, which is to mean anointed one or chosen one. In other words, Jesus is the chosen one. He's the Christ, as Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so hear how ridiculous it is for new believers to be doing things so apart from what their scriptures ever said and change their mind based off of God pushing through to them in Christ Jesus. And in this section in Acts 11, we have Peter and the other disciples trying to explain how it is that non-Jews, people who weren't the chosen of God, who weren't the chosen people of God, could be chosen in Christ. And so when people start calling Christians Christians, it's pretty ironic because to call someone a Christian, to say that you are affiliating with the chosen one their assumption secularly was that your chosen one's not even here. That dude is dead. He got taken care of all that time ago. So, why are you going to live such radical lives that cross all of these bounds, societally and personally, relationally, economically, that you would not have before? Why are you wasting your time going after someone who is dead? What kind of choice are you making? Do you see how divisive that is? That's what it meant to be a Christian. To be a Christian was to affiliate with someone that died to the rest of everyone. And yet there's the conviction and belief in the truth that because he rose from the dead, well, of course, then if this person, if this Messiah rose from the dead, then his speaking To us of this kingdom that is not just geopolitical, but would find itself fully in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see how difficult and divisive those words are? Because to love God with your whole being and to choose to love your neighbor as yourself and the neighbors were the people that you definitely didn't want to be your neighbors because you weren't going to spend time with them. That's what it means to be called a Christian. So if that's the case, then I'll say, great, call me a Christian. Because as a follower of Christ, I want it to be absurd. I would live this way. Here's the next fill in the blank. Jesus will divide us because he is challenging attentiveness. Write that down again. Because he is challenging attentiveness. Now, this is just supposed to break it up to see if you're paying attention. I don't know if some of you were like, why is the, the ness included in there? <laughs> well, that's just to challenge your attentiveness. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that you laughed at that. Just to wake you up a little bit. In the blank section, pose this question to yourself. How was I supposed to know that? (laughs) Well, in this teaching section, as Jesus is sharing, Peter actually starts asking, like, are these words for us? Are they for other people? And let me read again to you the passage that we began with. I, I began with, I came to bring fire to the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism from which to be baptized and what stress I'm under until it is completed. Do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. We read that earlier. But if people are paying attention and they're trying to listen, have ears to hear, then maybe they'll see that Jesus, he's reminding us of another prophet way before him. In Micah chapter 7, verse 2, the prophet Micah says, the faithful have disappeared from the land. And there is no one left who is upright. They all lie in wait for blood and they hunt each other with nets. Their hands are skilled to do evil. The official and the judge ask for a bribe, and the powerful dictate what they desire. Thus they pervert justice. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of their sentinels, of their punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a friend. Have no confidence in the loved one. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your embrace. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies are members of your own household. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will come hear me. Now, if we're reading out of a more modern translation, you could have heard the prophet Mike and thought, is he talking about 2022? Because it sounds like that's what's happening in the world. Oh, yeah. Because that is what's happening in the world right now. And it is what was happening during Jesus' time. And it is what was happening several several hundred years before Jesus' time when Micah was prophesying. And I'm so, so glad that we have this prophet Micah. Right? His name means who is like Yahweh. Who is like the Lord. In other words, who is as wild as this God who people believe was just this small tribal deity for these misplaced, displaced people, when in fact he is the God over all, and he will be who he will be. I am who I am. In other words, his ways, as we read earlier, are higher. His thoughts are higher, and they're so high that as soon as you and I attempt to contain that and make that neat and tidy, he is going to blow that thing up so much so that we are going to divide over what he is doing you see in micah's time the southern kingdom of judah was actually prospering really really well in latter time the king hezekiah he had he had announced reform all over religiously and politically it was a great time to be in the kingdom of judah bartering had gone away they were starting to use money and money as a thing when you can hold it. It's not like, let me just trade this for that. As soon as money becomes tangible and tacit, it gets exciting because it's not just, I gave you this, I ended up with this. It's, oh, I can actually, I can see this thing grow. I can get a lot of this. And it's not a coincidence that during this point in history, you have suddenly this widening gap between the rich and the poor. The people who have it and don't have it. Do you see how that sounds like 2022? And yet Micah, unlike other people, he's not in a position of power inside of the temple like the priests who suddenly their vocation is going to be absorbed with money and and stuff. He's out amongst the people in the town square proclaiming who is like the Lord. Who is the one that says, you've heard a moral, what is good for you? What does the Lord require that you do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God? Who is like him? And I'm so glad that Michael would say these words and listen to what he says later on in Verse 16. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick dust like a snake, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their fortress. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall stand in fear of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression, the remnant of your possession, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and unswerving loyalty to Abraham and you have swor- as you have sworn to our ancestors from the days of old. Who is a God like you? Who's a God like him? Who's wildly acting on behalf the poor and the have-nots and trying to upend the systems where the powerful get to exert their power. Who is a God like you that is calling the regular, all who are thirsty? You. And me, those who could not have been chosen unless we were of a certain type of people. And isn't it amazing that as Micah concludes this section, he goes back to Abraham and he goes back to Jacob, but he refers to them as these individual people. You see, before they become these nations, before it becomes more bureaucratized, before it becomes more solid and it looks all powerful, you just had these people who were trying to follow as God had called them and were wrestling with what that meant and That is our heritage. And so Jesus will divide us. Here's your next fill in the blank. Based on how we steward our peace. He's going to divide us based on how we look at wholeness and rightness. And what we do with a conviction that no one is like our God. And several weeks before Britt taught out of Luke chapter 7. And this great scene, where we have this woman who comes in the house of a Pharisee and anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. And as they question him, they start wondering, how can he be this person?" So your question that you can write is, "Don't you see how stressed out I am? How am I supposed to steward this?" What am I supposed to do with what you've told me? And so Jesus tells this parable after that scene, a certain creditor had two debtors. They owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. None which of them, excuse me, now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. In other words, everyone's got debts, Jesus is pointing out. But who's going to respond with more intensity? The people with more debt, which really is just how we consider our debt. Do you realize that some people could be in debt tens of thousands of dollars and not even think much on that? Some people could be in debt for a few hundred bucks and be freaking out. It's all about how we consider our debt and who we are. So let me give you a little definition of peace. One of the ways that we can understand peace is an even acknowledgement of brokenness. An even greater view of God's reconciling love made, catch this, personal through Christ. An even, and if I get on the floor, I would do it. An even acknowledgement of brokenness, but an even greater view of God's reconciling love made personal through Jesus Christ. When I think about my time, I constantly remind myself, you know what, Jed, it went before you, it'll go after you. We live and we die. I'm very fond of the book of Ecclesiastes and the perspective that we get there that is actually pervasive throughout scripture. At the conclusion, he'd say, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the years of trouble come where you will say, I find no pleasure in them.'" So students, it gets real hard. Growing up is tough. It's not so fun. Isn't it wild that Jesus would call us to become like kids again, curious, excited, active, engaging with our environment to learn and know that it's okay to make mistakes and to fumble along because learning and experiencing and going and breathing and using our bodies is a gift because we live and we die. And so what happens when in view of life and death, we recognize that Jesus Christ gives us opportunity, not just for something in the future, which is so true, but something here as well, to get us even more excited about being face-to-face, personal with him. I'd like to invite the band up. Almost nine years ago, eight and a half years ago, Mallory and I moved out to the valley with our 10-month-old son, Thadden. And Thadden is nine now. And Titus came along, and Ty is seven. And Truett came along, and Truy's four. And Truy's intense. He just is. You want to talk about someone who wants to bring division, that'll be little true-true. I tell you these things because we couldn't have imagined that this is where we would be at this point in our lives. But the prayer that we prayed when we were moving out to the valley, as we were, I should say as I was, I know I was. This was my confession. I was beginning to get caught up in what Christianity could give me. Trust me. And being in a megachurch and recording my album... And having my face up there leading worship. And I knew that that was going to get to me. And so we started praying, God, would you help us fade out? And so when Dr. Webb, who was a professor from Hope International University, called and asked us if we wanted to take a small high school pastor job in a small church in Temecula, I said, Dr. Webb, I love you, but I'm never leaving your Belinda. (laughs) Seriously, praying this prayer, and I wasn't going to do it. We ended up coming out here, and as the high school pastor of our ministry, which was the first role that I took, one of the things that I would do is I would longboard in our parking lot. I'd skate out there, and as I was longboarding, I'd think about what life looked like in this small town, how different it was. I started asking myself questions like, how are we going to communicate clearly to our students, and we'd already given them this passage of scripture from First Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight, where Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, "We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. We love you so much; we are delighted to share with you our lives as well." Here is your last fill in the blank: Jesus will divide us because you belong here. Jesus will divide us because you belong here. And the question you can write in, but how does dividing us reconcile us? You just got all this material that should make us fight and argue and be concerned about our future. No, 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 that's the exact opposite of what I'm trying to say. See, when I had longboard there, I think about how are we going to communicate to our students that every single one of them that was here really, really mattered. And when we had those nights where the attendance wasn't very high, I told our leaders that we would stop saying to our students, we we told our students, we're not going to say this anymore. We're not going to say no one's here. Okay, we're not going to say that. We're going to stop saying no one's here because if we say no one's here, those of you who are here, essentially are being told, you don't really matter. And that's not fair. And that's not right. And it doesn't sound like Jesus Christ. Center's Community Church. We have great concerns in this world. We have concerns about what's happening. We want to be a place where we together are learning how to find and follow Jesus. We want excitement and energy. We want to hear that we're dying on a vine. What's happening in the Sunridge or No, we want to be a place that says, regardless of us, it was here before us and will go after us. So why not have this VR get to? Why don't we start communicating to one another the truth that Jesus himself is our peace? Can I read to you in conclusion? For how you and I belong here. Oh, I've got paper clips in my Bible. I'm remove those so I can get to this passage. Lost well, from a wedding and a memorial. Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven says, So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth. Called the uncircumcision, those who are called the circumcision, by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you are at one time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups, into one and the one that has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Is that not what in 2022 the world needs to hear? Do you realize that well before our time, this was already the problem? It was even more intense actually back then because it was so separated racially and religiously and socioeconomically that the idea of diversity and there being power and diversity that wasn't the case until Christians, these people who were derogatorily called a name after this dead Messiah, decided that in Him they could choose to go and be different. So different that their belief system was going to get chopped up and divided because in order to follow Jesus the Christ, they actually would have to struggle with the things that they were always told and then go after a message of proclaiming peace to the people around them, being able to say, you belong here. You belong here, not based off of your performance or what you can do for God. You belong here because Jesus Christ came close to you and to me and to us. Friends, the reason why Christianity is falling apart and being divided is because of course that's going to fall apart. Of course we can argue about all these things that quite frankly not enough of us are going to be able to talk about and and the people who are in the positions of power and getting paychecks off of our books and the things that we're writing and saying it's like there's incentive for us to make it difficult but it's incredible to remember that Jesus Christ came near to us. Can I read to you as we conclude out of the ERB? just to make sure that we don't miss it. When I was our high school pastor, I, I had the NRSV and then I'd cuddle it with the ERB just to make sure we all understood what it said. The ERV is the easy to read version. I read the easy to read version all the time because I need help. Listen to this. You were not born as Jews. You are the people the Jews call uncircumcised. Those Jews who call you uncircumcised call themselves circumcised. Their circumcision is only something they themselves do to their bodies. Remember that in the past you were without Christ. You were not citizens of Israel, and you did not know about the agreements with the promises that God made to his people. You had no hope, and you did not know God. Yes, at one time you were far away from God, but now in Christ Jesus you are brought near to him. You were brought near to God through the blood sacrifice of Christ. Christ is the reason we are now at peace. He has made us Jews and you who are not Jews, one people. We are separated by a wall of hate that stood between us, but Christ broke down that wall. By giving his own body, Christ ended the law with its many commands and rules. His purpose was to make the two groups become one in him. By doing this, he would make peace. The cross, Christ ended the hate between the two groups, and after they became one body, he wanted to bring them both back to God. He did this with his death on the cross. Christ came and brought the message of peace to you non who were far away from God. He brought the peace, and he brought the message of peace to those who were near to God. Would you stand? As we sing about the fierce love of God, would we recognize? that even though in our minds these categories for distinctions are all settled and done, okay, well, that was Jews and Gentiles, and no, it's a lot different now. Trust me, people. You're a human being. It's not different now. You and I struggle because of how we look at ourselves and how we look at people. When Christ is calling us to look at himself, would we look at him, our peace? Would we see him coming near to us? Let's worship together.